can read some of them, and then if others of you have questions. Um, If this practice is about the relief of suffering, why is everyone so grim? (laughs) (coughs) See, everyone is not so grim. (laughs) A curious yogi. Well, I think that raises two two interesting points. One is uh, the difference between being mindful and being grim, you know, and that one can actually be very attentive, very in the moment, very caring and meticulous, with a very open and relaxed and light heart. So I suggest you explore that possibility. (laughs) (coughs) Because grimness does not add anything. It doesn't enhance mindfulness. But sometimes people feel, you know, that somehow to be mindful means that kind of tension or holding. Uh, So I think it's worth checking to see uh, with what quality of mind and heart, uh, you are practicing meticulousness and care. Um, One of the images that really sticks in my mind a lot, and I don't know whether I've mentioned this uh, before, but years ago I was out in Colorado at Naropa and uh, a group of Japanese classical dancers came and were putting on a performance, and it was the first time I had ever seen that. And in this Japanese classical dance, they were moving so slowly. The movements were so slow and so precise. I mean, it was quite amazing. And yet, the feeling of it was of such incredible grace and presence. You know, so it really embodied or represented that quality that we can cultivate. Uh, That precision and exactness and care doesn't mean tightening the heart. So that's from one side. From the other side, uh, with respect to this question, uh, looks can sometimes be deceiving. You know, we might see people walking around and from the outside it might look grim, uh, and yet from the inside that person may be in a very light Uh, an easy and spacious uh, awareness. So I would be hesitant about uh, projecting one's view, you know, on others. I think it is helpful to check in with oneself. I believe I've heard of mental states explained as filters coloring our perception. Could you talk about mental states which seem to last and be the background for example, anxiety versus a clear emotion, <coughs> a clear emotion that arises and passes quicker and more vividly, for example, fear. Any helpful tools for discerning more subtle moods, or should we just stay with what's predominant and in the foreground? I think this is a really interesting question. Uh, how to work mindfully with the whole range of emotion, you know, with those that seem to come up quite vividly and sharply, perhaps like fear, you know, when we are well aware and connected with their arising, and it's maybe somewhat easier to be in a mindful relation, to be noting it as an arising state, at one end of the emotional spectrum, to something that may be much more vague or amorphous, perhaps like anxiety or other other feelings or moods. Um, Whenever we feel or we get some signal that there's some contraction or some heaviness or some 
filter on our experience that we're not really uh, noticing or clear about, I think it's extremely uh, interesting and helpful to arouse the investigation at that point. And it's really one way is asking the question, and we each might have our own question here, but something like, okay, what is this? What's going on? Because often with, an amor- with something that's quite amorphous, we have to step way back. You know, it's not like a clearly defined object that we can see in the moment. We need to step way back, make a, a very big frame or very big opening to really feel, okay, well, what is this? What is this feeling? And then if we can recognize, as an example, maybe there is an anxiety or a heaviness or something that we're actually experiencing, to see if it's possible to kind of trace that experience back into the body so that we're actually locating it as something tangible in the body, where that's being held, where the, where the central contraction is. Um, the feeling itself, the emotion itself, whatever it is, is never the problem. The problem comes <coughs> when we're not uh, seeing it clearly enough and therefore in some way identifying with it, holding it, attached to it in some way. And that's what we really want to see. We want to open to what it is, trace it back into the body so that we feel that place of holding and then see, it's almost as if once we're centered in the body in that way, it's almost like a relaxing into space so we're, we're really changing, changing our relationship to it, and it becomes one of uh, really becomes one of acceptance, acceptance and and a letting go, uh, a letting go that comes through the acceptance. I was just um, the question was was timely today because I was just having that kind of feeling today. I woke up in the morning, I was just feeling this kind of, just a heaviness, you know, a kind of heaviness in the heart. So I was, as I was going through my interviews, <laughs> I was just feeling it, you know, and it was, it was quite interesting to me because it was unpleasant, you know, it was an unpleasant feeling, but I kept coming back, and I was, I was feeling that the center of that contraction right here, and I would just come back to it and then, psh, it's like dissolving into the space and it became the space of non-separation. And it's really interesting because when we are identified with these emotions, what we're doing is creating, we're creating the separation through that identification. We're kind of locked here and then everybody else is on the outside and we're relating them to them through the filter of that or through the energy of that. And kind of just coming back to where it's held. I don't, know, I don't know whether this is conveying anything, but if it's making some sense to you, you might experiment in this way a little bit because it was quite, um, quite liberating. I can do that, but it's how it's going and it comes back. Yeah. Right away. Yeah. Eduardo's comment was that he can do that, but it comes back right away. <coughs> I think that's fine, and I think we can do it many times. You know, and at a certain point, it ceases to have a hold on us. You know, and that's that was just my experience today. I would do it, and it would come back, and I would do it, and come back, and then at a certain point, it's like it really eased, it, it really let go. Uh, but a lot of it, with these background or amorphous emotions, it takes. Because they're not clearly defined arisings, you know, because because they're not clear, we really need to to step back and open up with that interest, you know, 
expressed by the question, okay, well, what's happening here? What's, what's going on in the experience right now? Uh, and with that quality of interest, it's often revealed. Oh, this was... <laughs> some of these questions are really wonderful. Having begun my practice in the East, where... Culturally, culturally, concepts of rebirth seem natural. It opened up these possibilities to me. I find it quite baffling that you present these topics with humor or acknowledging that you present these topics like rebirth with humor or acknowledging the audience's skepticism. A clear example of faith seems warranted. Could you talk a bit and that was really one question and another question on social action. Um, this is an interesting question and it's, it's a, um, it's kind of a koan, I think, for teachings and teachers in the West. Um, where the idea of rebirth is not a particularly commonly held notion. It's not what we grow up with. And it's not necessarily what any of us have direct experience of. And yet it is something which is very much part of the Buddhist teachings. I mean, when you read the suttas, there's many, many references to rebirth and to the planes of existence, and they're not talked about metaphorically. They really talked about part of this, it's like the map of samsara, you know, and of just the different realms in which rebirth can take place, just as we've taken rebirth in this realm. Um, so personally, I have a very strong belief in this. It's not something that I have personal experience. I don't have memories of past lives. Uh, and yet, it was interesting to me to see and to look back how that belief grew over time. Because when I went to begin practice, uh, I didn't have it at all. I came from a very, I studied philosophy in college. You know, I had a very Western-oriented mind. So the belief in rebirth was, well, the idea of rebirth was quite foreign. Uh, but as I look back, there was some steps along the way that began to open my mind to this possibility and then even to feel, even though there's no personal experience of it, a very strong intuition of it. Um, so I just thought I'd share with you some of the steps that happened in my own practice in this regard. You know, as we go along and we practice and we experience for ourselves so much of the Buddhist teachings being true. You know, we practice a little and we say, oh yeah, this much is, seems true based on my own experience. We practice a little more, oh yeah, he's still right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we practice a little more. So one begins to kind of, our opinions, our attachments to opinions begin to soften a little bit. You know, because we say, yeah, he seemed to know quite a lot. <laughs> and even though I haven't experienced this, maybe he's right. <laughs> so that, that actually, you know, prepared the ground for the possibility of considering something which was outside sort of the cultural upbringing. So that was one piece. Another piece was meeting people <coughs> who did at least say they had very direct experience you know, of other realms of existence and past lives and even future lives. And one of the people in this regard who had a profound influence on me personally in my practice was Deepama, you know, who was this most extraordinary being. Um, and Munindra, who was her teacher, used to tell us stories of all the things he trained her to do. Uh, you know, through her samadhi practice and developing what are called the abhinyas or the 
They're loosely translated as the psychic powers, but really they're the, they're the powers of mind that can be developed, you know, that, that we have the potential for. And she was such a master okay. of both the samatha practice, the concentration, and also the vipassana, that she was very accomplished in this. And people would ask her quite directly, mostly Westerners, uh, you know, have you really seen these other realms? Have you seen into past lives? And she would very straightforwardly say yes. Um, so that was another piece. It's like, Again, it's believing what she said, but there was no reason to disbelieve her. It was hard to imagine that she was saying something that wasn't true, at least in her experience. So that was another piece that somebody I knew actually had direct experience. The third piece was really coming to understand for myself, and this is really what we're all doing, Uh, more and more deeply and clearly understanding the nature of the mind, the nature of awareness, and beginning to see that in some basic fundamental way, it's something independent of the body, of the material processes. Uh, And just to to begin to get, or, or to have a range of experiences about the very nature of consciousness, the nature of mind, uh, itself opens up, you know, it opens us up to consider possibilities that are outside the range of what we uh, may immediately know. The reason, perhaps, that we don't speak so much about rebirth or other planes, even though we obviously allude to it, is that the belief in it or not is not essential for enlightenment, for awakening, and in fact not even for leading a good life, although it does provide a real context of a huge, a vast context of understanding things, you know, and how this whole cycle of life and death happens. And there's one place where somebody came to the Buddha, you know, questioning if there's no, I don't believe in rebirth, so why should I practice? And the Buddha just led him through a series of questions and answers, pointing out that here and now, in this very life, Freeing the mind from greed, from hatred, from delusion, brings us happiness. And it would freeze the mind right here. Um, so on the one hand, I think it's very helpful to keep a very open mind uh, to this possibility, because it's certainly part of the classical teachings. And at the same time to realize that our practice doesn't depend on that. This question is somewhat related. (coughs) Sometimes it seems that the soft, sweet, and cuddly aspects of the Dharma are talked about here at IMS to the exclusion of harder aspects. The texts are filled with stories of women and men who become seized with a fear of rebirth in a woeful state and give up everything to find Nibbana and so become safe. One wonders how such a person would be responded to at a morning morning question and answer. (laughs) Or again in the text, the Dharma can sometimes seem like a jealous lover asking that for his or her sake we give up marriage, choose not to have children, Here, Dharma practice sometimes seems like something to fit in between a good romantic relationship, a rewarding career, and trips to South America, if it's convenient. One hears it doesn't matter what you experience, uh, all are impermanent, and can easily understand this to mean that the unconditioned too is not something that one should sacrifice much to experience. If it happens on a nine-day retreat or on a first or second three-month retreat, 
great. But don't worry if it doesn't. Or think that one should make life choices so that one might experience it, if doing so would be difficult. Could you please comment on this? <coughs> Again, I think that this, quest, this question raises many important questions about our understanding and our practice and our commitment. When I read that and I was thinking a little about it, I just started reflecting uh, on how the Buddha himself, as it's come down to us, um, taught. And um, it came to mind, of course, that he taught a wide, a vast array of people with a wide range of motivations, many of whom were lay people. You know, and many of whom were nuns and monks. Um, and so I think it's important first to remember that the Dharma has a very vast scope and can be helpful to people in many situations with many levels of aspiration. Now, the Buddha talked about different kinds of happiness and he really laid out the way to different kinds of happiness. We talked about the happiness of the worldly, worldly sense happiness. You know, and he said that practice of generosity in sila is the cause of this. So that if that's what one wants, should should practice generosity and non-harming. He talked about the happiness of concentration of samadhi, you know, a higher happiness. He talked about the happiness of insight. He talked about the happiness of awakening, of enlightenment. It might be interesting to reflect, not too long, but to reflect some really on what one's basic aspiration is, what, what one's motivation is. Because if our motivation is awakening, is enlightenment, you know, if we're really practicing to come out of ignorance, and perhaps in an even larger context, to do that with the spirit of bodhicitta, that we're not doing it for ourselves alone, that we're doing it in order to benefit other beings, all other beings. If we're connecting with that, even as, you know, a small seed within us, then I think it really provides a reference point for the kind of commitment that's needed. Now we do really want to look at our life choices. If we're committed to awakening, to liberation, what are we choosing to do with our lives? And it's not necessarily a particular prescription. I mean, it's not necessarily that we go off and become monks and nuns, because even in the Buddhist time there were many lay people, countless lay people, who realized uh, stages of enlightenment, stages of awakening. So it's possible within the lay life. And this is the challenge and the, and the great interest, I think, for us in the West now. You know, because we find, and I think we're all representative of it. You know, all of us here obviously have some very strong commitment to practice because if you didn't, you wouldn't be here. So there's something very strong inside, you know, that is motivating you. The great challenge for us at least for now, is how can we actualize this in the context of being a lay person? Because that seems for most of us to be the situation, at least for now. And I think, I think it really does raise, raise important questions. Um,
and to see how often in our culture we do shy away from things that are unpleasant you know, or difficult. This is just one example of this which was so striking to me of how for many of us our minds interpret things in a certain light. Uh, years ago, uh, Mahagosananda, this wonderful Cambodian monk who is just kind of the embodiment of metta. He just sits and smiles and giggles. <coughs> he came and gave a talk here. And he gave a talk on, it was kind of the mindfulness of food and mindfulness of eating. And part of it, and I think this is a classical teaching, was he just described the process of what happens to food, starting from seeing it on the plate, where it's all nice and attractive, you know, and then we put it in our mouth and start chewing it, and it's a lot less attractive, you know, and swallow and going through the digestive system and coming out when it's least attractive. And so he just did this, kind of as a guided meditation. And a common response, I mean, there were a lot of notes after that, you know, of people commenting about why he had so much aversion for eating, you know, for food. And it was so interesting because there was no aversion at all. It was just a very clear description of what actually happens. This is the process. But we're so often reluctant to look at the unpleasant side of things. And so the mind can easily sort of defend against it by interpreting, oh, you know, that's just aversion towards it. And we miss something. We miss something very important. You know, in a lot of the Buddhist teachings, he's pointing these aspects out. There's a whole series of meditations called the Asuba. You know, Asuba means beautiful. Asuba means non-beautiful the non-beautiful sides of things. And it's meditations which are geared to the weakening of our attachment. Now, what is it that keeps us bound? What keeps us bound are our clinging, our attachments to things, because we're not seeing this other side. Um, You know, one of the very powerful things about uh, reading the teachings uh, and being with teachers who present it very classically is that the Buddha was just so straight. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't interested in pleasing people. It was really just about saying how things were, although at the same time it said that he had this amazing skill of speaking to people just where they were. So I'll just tell you a story from the other side. There was this one monk who, (coughs) one of the elders in the Sangha, gave the meditation on um, the non-beautiful aspects of the body. Uh, Colloquial Buddhist language, the loathsomeness, right, that side. So this monk was practicing and practicing, and he wasn't getting any place, and he was just getting very depressed. So months are going by, you know, and he was very committed, and he, he was trying. <coughs> this is kind of the loathsome aspect. <laughs> <laughs> So this poor monk was going on and on, you know, trying and making effort, but not getting any place. Finally, the Buddha came to know. And he said, this is the wrong practice for this person. Because this person had been a goldsmith for 500 lifetimes in a row. And that's the kind of classic. And was just very used to dealing with things of beauty. And so the Buddha said through his kind of psychic, you know, his powers of mind, created a golden lotus flower 
that uh, as this monk meditated on it, it would slowly uh, disintegrate. And it was so by contemplating the impermanence of the beautiful that awakened this person's mind and heart. So it's just important to see that for each one of us, there's a vast array in the teachings, a vast array of skillful means. Um, And it's beautiful. It's it's what makes the Dharma so rich. Um, Maybe before I read any more, if any of you have any questions or, or comments... The question was about, um, she seems to be in a space of a lapse of mindfulness where the mind simply won't note, uh, and she's trying to note or notice that, but it seems to be a space (coughs) uh, that just allows for a lot more thought and a lot more judgment to arise. First, in that space where it seems like there's a lapse of mindfulness and it's difficult to note, is it actually a lapse of mindfulness or are you in a space of noticing what's happening but somehow the the noting mechanism is not working? seems like the noticing is still going on, but the noting labeling mechanism is not working. I think sometimes that happens, and, and it can happen uh, sometimes just when there's a lot of calmness, a stillness in the mind. It's, it's like the mind gets nonverbal, and it just doesn't have the oomph to actually create a mental note. Uh, but if in that space, you know, where you start out noticing what's there, but then begin to drift off of it, uh, in the noticing, without the mental noting, I would try to just bring the mind in uh, closer to whatever it is, whether it's in the walking, to really be feeling the sensations of the movement quite meticulously, or the breath, or give the mind, uh, if you're finding it difficult to stay with the breath, to do sitting and touching, but with several touch points, you know, so that you really... Uh, engaging the mind very precisely in what's arising. Um, another another approach, or in conjunction with that, could be instead of trying to note everything and finding you can't, and then not noting anything, to just bring in the note intermittently. You know, so you're giving the mind, you're allowing for that space of not wanting to know it, but you're not giving it up entirely. You know, and so just every 20 seconds or every 30 seconds or every minute, you know, drop in a note. And that might actually help you just keep the thread uh, of it.
Well, I think the key understanding is to avoid those things which cause heedlessness. Um, so then, of course, the range of interpretation comes about, well, is this causing heedlessness or not? Um, I think ultimately, uh, you need to look very honestly uh, at your own experience and experiment. And I, I've gone through uh, quite a few phases with this. Uh, you know, of sometimes occasionally having a glass of wine or a beer, and then at other times, and this particularly arose uh, uh, when I was in Burma and practicing with Saido uh, Upandita, and he, he of course would take a, a very, a very strict line with this, saying, you know, no, no uh, alcohol or drugs of any kind. The only exception being if somebody ties you down, pours it down your throat, and you don't enjoy it. <laughs> you haven't broken a precept. <laughs> but anything short of that. <laughs> and it was very pa so motivated by him. Uh, I practiced that way for many, many years, you know, of really just, of not taking anything. And it was very powerful, you know. Uh, so I, I would say really look at it carefully in your life and experiment. Take some time and see for yourself, you know, the power, the power of complete abstention. Or if you, you know, do have some moderate use to really look at, okay, what's the effect on the mind of that? I think it's all, and this goes back to, in some way, some of these other questions. Um, something that we don't explore a lot in our society uh, is the power of renunciation. You know, and it's a word that often frightens us a little bit or we don't understand it. And yet in the teachings it plays a very critical role because uh, renunciation really is the letting go of addiction, the letting go of craving. Um, and so I think ways, again, not to do this as some kind of moralistic you know, punishment. It's really just to, to take an interest in this regard in our lives Okay, well, what does it mean? What, what would it be like? What does it feel like to actually refrain from certain activities that we might have a desire for? No, no, we might want to do it, but just as a practice, we say, no, let me, let me not do this. You know, and, and really explore the kind of strength that's possible. Um, again, in some way, the monastic life structures this. And it's like structured renunciation, and so in some ways it's easier because the whole environment is supporting it. This comes back to the challenge for us as lay people where there is no structure supporting that. We need to really look and create our own, you know, and be willing just to play and to explore with it. But in some way, I think this really makes the Dharma alive for us. You know, it's not just going on because something is a cultural value or because something has been, you know, done in a certain way for so many thousands of years. We're really taking these principles of the Dharma and really looking at them, you know, in our own lives and, and exploring.
I think that what you're asking is about, uh, and tell me if I'm on track here, um, is the experience of the awareness of what's known as as well as the object itself. Is, is that what you're asking about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you can approach it from a couple of sides. One image which may strike you as slightly bizarre, but it has come to mind. It is it is slightly bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> if there were a corpse here and you were pumping its stomach, you know, so there was a rising falling movement. The rising falling would be there. But as far as we can tell, that corpse probably isn't knowing it. Right? So, so there's the physical movement happening, but, with, but without awareness. So I just, uh, I like the image because it, it just highlights the difference between physical phenomena, which are happening, and the knowing of them. So obviously when we're sitting, the rising falling is the same. It's just it's just a physical movement, and yet there's something else going on as well. It's the something else, you know. And so you might just play with that a little bit to get a sense. Yes, there's the movement, and that movement is being known. Right? And it's what we call the being known. What we call we call that awareness. Awareness is that which knows. Uh, It's not a physical thing. And and this is part of sort of exploring or getting in touch with the mystery of awareness because it's not, you can't point to it and say, yeah, that's where it is, or that's what it is. And yet this knowing faculty is happening in every moment. in the walking meditation, you know, it becomes very apparent because the movement of the leg is obviously a physical movement. It's just, it's just physical sensations. The leg itself doesn't know anything. You know, and yet, in the movement, just moment after moment, that movement, those sensations of movement are being known. They're being cognized. And so just to be right there in that. You don't particularly have to analyze it or even understand it conceptually or intellectually. It's really a question of just being in the immediacy of awareness, the immediacy of knowing. And it's happening moment after moment after moment with everything, with the sound, with the sensation, with the thought, with... An emotion, it's things being known moment after moment. And they're being known spontaneously and they're being known immediately. Somebody in an interview today uh, was commenting that even though I say that I find that amazing... (laughs) She didn't find it amazing because it just seems the way things are. And I think it is just the way things are. Uh, And I still find it amazing. (laughs) 
mean, just the simplest thing, you know, when, when just move your arm. It's like this, there's, a, there's like a current or a, you know, just a current of sensation which is spontaneously being known. And that's happening all the time. It's happening all day long. But what happens is that we lose connection with it. We get distracted. You know, and that's really what our practice is, to come back into the immediacy of it. And to see all the ways we get distracted, we get pulled out from it, we get seduced by things, and then live in whatever world we create, you know, which is... (laughs) It's like we build prisons, you know, and then go in, lock the door, (laughs) throw the key out. But fortunately, I mean, the Buddha came along and said, well, here's the key. <laughs> you know, we don't have to leave, live in these prisons of mind-created stuff. That we can come back right to the immediacy of the moment, whatever it is, whether it's physical or mental phenomena. We just come right back to the immediacy of knowing it. And, of course, in that we see what the Buddha talked about with such, you know, so frequently, the three characteristics of the impermanence and the unreliability, the selflessness, all of that is is immediately apparent when we're actually present. So it's not that we create awareness. I mean, that's spontaneously present when we're undistracted. I mean, do you see really how simple the practice is? It's not easy. Because the, the strong conditioning of the mind, as, as we all know, we, we just have established such strong habits of mind, of getting lost, of reaction, of judgment, of all the hindrances. But it's simple. You know, even though we need to keep remembering, it's just coming back again and again. Maybe I'll just uh, read this question. Would you please speak about these tonight? Spacious, luminous mind, Buddha nature, enlightenment, (laughs) the unconditioned. (laughs) Are these related, interconnected? With regard to spacious, luminous mind, in some way I think a better word than luminosity, which is often used in Buddhist texts, luminosity is is a word that comes up a lot uh, as expressing the nature of the mind, but what's really meant by that is not necessarily some kind of Uh, quality of light, it's more the quality of lucidity. You know, it's that inherent uh, or natural clarity of mind, unobstructedness of mind that knows things spontaneously. That's what's, that's what's meant by luminosity. You know, and so instead of it being some far off state which you know, maybe we'll experience some year, this is much more immediate because this really is the nature of awareness itself, this quality of lucidity, right? just knowing things clearly, spontaneously in the moment as being the nature of the mind. Um, Buddha nature, I think, I'm sure it could be talked about in many ways, um, But I think perhaps what encapsulates uh, the meaning of that are the two <coughs> the two qualities or the two qualities of emptiness and compassion, and in some way the union of them. Emptiness meaning emptiness of self. You know that there's that we're not congealing 
a sense of self in the play of phenomena. You know, that we're not through we're not through identification creating this contraction, you know, or this congealing. And so this is the this is the empty nature, the empty of self nature. Now what's interesting about that is that compassion is I don't know the right word exactly. You could say the consequence or the manifestation or the compassion is the expression of emptiness because in the experience of emptiness of self, there's no self in other. So it really becomes an experience of non-separation. And we know that in certain moments at least. We may not be living in that space all the time, um, but we have moments. You know, when we drop that identification with anything and are just, there's just appearances arising. You know, that, that uh, teaching from Kala Rinpoche, which we mentioned earlier, uh, there is a reality, we are that reality. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. And it's so profound. I mean, when we take the I out of all experience, what's left is all experience, all appearance. We take the I of separation out of it. You know, we stop constructing it, we stop creating it. I think I'm going to really, uh, in terms of enlightenment, all, all of these are really asking the same question in a way, just using different phrases, but I'm going to talk more about my understanding of the nature of enlightenment uh, next week. Uh, so please come back. <laughs> okay, any last questions? This is a very tricky question. <laughs> uh, I think I'm losing my voice. <laughs> the question was, I can rephrase it. The Buddha talked about the five khandas, the five aggregates, you know, the, the physical, the physical elements, and then four mental. Uh, of the four aggregates of mind, three are mental factors, or, or combinations of mental factors, and one is consciousness itself. Okay, here's where different schools of Buddhism diverge. But they diverge in theory. I'm not sure that in experience there's any difference, and that's why it gets a little tricky. In the classical teachings that we've learned in Burma and going back to the Visuddhimagga and... One of the, uh, there's a very wonderful little verse, which I don't know that anybody has mentioned, probably in one of the talks, 
that the mind is naturally luminous, something like that. the mind is naturally pure and luminous, it's defiled by visiting defilements. You know, the, the mind is naturally pure and luminous. Uh, it's freed from the absence of the visiting defilements. So even though it's talking about consciousness as one of the aggregates, it's talking about that purity of mind when there are no defilements present. Okay, so that's that's in that framework. In another framework, and you find this in some of the teachings of the Taifaris tradition, they talk of another kind of awareness They talk of the the aggregates of consciousness as being uh, arising when there's uh, some kind of craving in the mind, some kind of holding, and an awareness aside from that, which is free of that craving. So as I said, the model is different, but it really comes back to the experience of the absence of craving. So then, however you want to describe it, Different schools or traditions. No, there would be other other mental factors there, but but without any craving, you know, or without ignorance. You know, it's interestingly, and this again, it just points to the heart of, really, to the heart of what we're practicing, even though we sometimes don't like to see it this way. Uh, but in the Buddha's famous verse after you know his enlightenment, uh, he said, realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. So it's really about the end of craving. You know, that the unconditioned is that mind or awareness free of any craving. And again, I'm going to I'm going to talk more about this next week because it really is it's the heart of what we're practicing. Not just the mind free of grasping at anything. Free of grasping at anything as being I or mine or self. And every moment is providing us opportunity to practice that. You know, with whatever, whether it's in walking meditation or the things that arise in sitting or moving around, it's simply appearances arising. In that very moment, how are we relating? Are we relating with the mind of open awareness, simply aware of the immediacy of that knowing, or are we relating through some kind of craving or other? You know, so there's a tremendous, and I, I hope you, you know, you bring this quality of interest to the practice because it's right here uh, that freedom lies. You know, it's not it's not necessarily something to be thought of as something far off. It's right in the moment, and in the next moment, and the next moment. Okay, maybe the last question. Yeah. The question was about whether the, the liberated mind is free of craving arising or simply doesn't cling to craving when it does arise. Uh, again, this is a subject of some dispute <laughs> <laughs> among the schools. Uh, Practically speaking, I think it doesn't matter. I mean, if in fact there's no clinging or identification with desire when it arises, 
If it arises, fine, we're not clinging to it. And perhaps it doesn't arise. What I would suggest is uh, that we find out. <laughs> I mean, one, of the, one of the great motivations for me in practice is I really want to know the answers to a lot of these questions. <laughs> so if you find out, please tell me. <laughs> okay, why don't we sit for a couple of minutes? <coughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.